What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Mayalari. Hope all of you are doing well, and hope all of you guys have had a great last week or so. I haven't had an episode now for about uh, five days or so since the NHL draft, uh, but tonight I'm going to be giving you uh, a baseball special. Um, I will be giving another episode probably uh, within the next day or so uh, to talk about the NBA free agency uh, update, uh, also talk about the NHL draft and what happened in that, um, and then also talk about some other things going on in sports. Um, but in tonight's episode, I'm going to be doing a baseball special and talk everything baseball from the Red Sox series against the Yankees, Chris Sale's season debut tonight against the Rays, um, the World Baseball Classic was announced that it's going to return in the uh, spring of 2023, and then also the Baltimore Orioles excelling uh, over the last month, along with the Seattle Mariners, both teams uh, have been playing very well as of late, uh, so I'm going to highlight both of those teams. I'm also going to talk about the MLB All-Star Game, which is next Monday and Tuesday night. Monday night is the Homer Derby, Tuesday night's the All-Star Game. I'm going to break down the rosters and which Red Sox players made it, and then I'm also going to talk about the Home Run Derby. I'm going to talk about the five uh, players that are currently set up to be in it. I know there's still going to be more players that are named, uh, but I'm going to break down the five that are in it as of now, um, giving my opinions on uh, them. I'll also break down the history within the Home Run Derby for those that have been a part of a Home Run Derby before. And then I'll also give a few names that I would hope uh, to see in the Home Run Derby, guys that aren't committed as of now, but I think would be um, a solid addition to the contest. So to get things started off in this episode, I'm going to talk about the Red Sox. Brian Bayo made his debut as a Red Sox. His MLB debut came last week against the Tampa Bay Rays at home at Fenway Park. He had a stat line of four innings pitched, allowing six hits, four earned runs, two strikeouts. He finished the day throwing 79 pitches, 45 of those uh, were strikes, running up a high pitch count, um, trying to get out of jams early in the game is really what did him in. Uh, but besides that, he pitched well. Um, the third inning uh, was the issue for him. He allowed four base runs with two outs in the third, um, giving up three runs. Uh, started off with two outs, a single, a double, a walk, and a double. Uh, but as I said, besides that inning, he honestly didn't play bad at all. He played very well. Uh, he did get behind in the count a ton, uh, which definitely didn't help. But for a young pitcher, you don't really expect too much for them, especially when they're playing against the Tampa Bay Rays, a very good team. Obviously, that lineup isn't elite, but they got a good enough lineup where it's not something you can just blink at and say, oh, you know, it's not a bad you know team to face in your first MLB game. It's not easy to face them. they got Juan DeFranco, Yandy Diaz. G-Man Choi, a lot of guys that can hit. Kevin Kamire always likes hitting against the Red Sox. Uh, so they have a lot of talent in that lineup. I know it's not the Yankees lineup, obviously, but um, it's not a team that you're going up against in your first game thinking, okay, this is going to be a cakewalk. So Bayo's final stat line of the game was four innings pitched, six hits allowed, four earned runs, three walks, two strikeouts. The three walks definitely uh, weren't great, uh, especially with one of them coming in that third inning where he did allow three runs with two outs. Two outs allowed four base runners, one of them being a walk, three hits allowed um, of those four base runners. But besides that third inning, he did pitch very well. Uh, the first inning got hit around, gave up a run. But you take away that third inning, he only gave up one run. So I think there's a lot of good things, a lot of bad things, obviously things he has to work on. Obviously getting behind the pitch count, that's something you have to improve upon. But for a young rookie, a young kid that's just making his MLB debut, you can't expect too much in his MLB debut, especially going up against the Tampa Bay Rays, as I said. So uh, at the end of the day, you can just be happy he made his MLB debut and hopefully works on getting up in the count, not getting behind in the count, keeps throwing those fastballs at 97, 98 miles an hour because it's always exciting to watch. Um, his first fastball was at 97 miles an hour. I think I said 96 before, but 97 miles an hour. So he definitely has the velo, just has to stay up in the count. He's going to be very dangerous on the Red Sox if he has to come. So now to move on to Brian Bayo's second start in the MLB. It came last night, four innings pitched. Uh, both of his starts coming against the Tampa Bay Rays with this one going four innings once again, allowing seven hits, five earned runs, five Ks, three walks. So walk three batters yet again, 82 pitches. Uh, he has a 10-1-3 
Um, ERA now in eight innings pitched and two starts, 10.13. So he's definitely got to get better there. Seven strikeouts to six walks, 13 hits allowed, and nine earned runs in eight innings pitched. Definitely not what you want to see, especially 13 hits in eight innings. Also six walks in eight innings and nine runs in eight innings. But one positive thing about it is his fastball, that velo is something you can't teach. So he just has to work on location, staying up in the count. I think that'll definitely help him, um, especially considering he's only made a second MLB start. There's a lot more games uh, left to be played this season, and hopefully he gets to learn each game, you know, incrementally goes up every single game and improves a little bit uh, one piece at a time. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to make a huge difference. Um, But not the best first two starts especially for a Red Sox prospect who is so highly touted. But I'll say one thing about him, that I give him credit for going out there again, going up against the same lineup. It's not easy. Obviously, as I said, going up against the Tampa Bay Rays isn't the easiest thing, and I'm going to get into the injuries. He didn't have to face Juan DeFranco or Kevin Kamari the second time around. Uh, but it's definitely not easy, an easy team to go up against. Uh, but both times going up against them, four innings pitched, along four earned runs in the first one, five earned runs in the second one, walking three bats at both. Uh, his strikeout... Rate did go up more in this one at five strikeouts compared to only two strikeouts in his MLB debut. But I think if you give him another two, three, four starts, you're going to see improvements from him. I'm definitely excited to see how it works out for him. Now moving on to Chris Sale, who will be pitching for the Red Sox tonight. His final game in Worcester, a stat line was 3.2 innings pitched, three hits allowed, one earned run, five strikeouts, five walks, uh, 72 pitches, 42 strikes. The five walks definitely is something he has to improve upon. But with it being a rib injury, you don't have to worry about his arm being not the same as it used to be. His fastball is definitely back uh, to what it was two, three years ago before he was hurt. His fastball topped at 97, stayed around 93 to 96 consistently during the game. He did have a meltdown after the game, after being taken out. He went into the locker room and down the tunnel, ended up breaking a TV, kicking it, and taking a bat to it. Uh, he ended up paying for it as well. Uh, but for a very injury-prone player, he definitely think he should control his emotions better, especially since he's been made of glass over the last two or three years now. So I definitely wish he controlled his emotions at least a little bit better. I know, obviously, uh, it's a tense situation. You don't want to walk five guys. But it's a minor league baseball game at the end of the day. And acting like that and breaking a TV and taking a bat to it is just unacceptable and not something you want to see out of a star on your team or an ace on your team since it doesn't say, set a great example for the rest of the young guys that he's playing with on the Worcester Red Sox in that night. He'll be making his MLB season debut tonight uh, at Tropicana Field, so hopefully he has a good one. Uh, I'm sure he'll probably go around four innings, maybe five innings. I don't think they're going to really stretch him too much and make him go uh, the distance. I don't think he'll go more than five innings. Uh, but I'm definitely excited to see how he pitches. Uh, the Red Sox definitely need him back in the rotation, especially with all the injuries. Nate Evaldi, Garrett Whitlock, Michael Walker, Rich Hill. A ton of injuries for that Red Sox pitching staff, so getting Chris Sale back is a major boost. Um, and then now to look at the other injuries, Raphael Devis will return to the lineup tonight after missing a few games now with a back injury. The next injury is Christian Arroyo. He just went to the 10-day IL with a left groin strain, probably just a way to let him relax and clear his mind after a tough play he had on Friday night against the Yankees, so that way he can just let time pass and they let things cool down, which I'm going to talk about that when I talk about the Yankees series. But he just went to the 10-day IL with a left groin strain. Connor Siebold, rookie pitcher, just went to the 15-day DL with right forearm extensor strain. Uh, Kike Hernandez just got his rehab assignment halted. He felt tightness in his hip after going 0-4 on Friday in Worcester. Um, I think the setback will now keep him out longer, and it's an indefinite amount of time now he'll be out. So I don't think he'll be returning to the Red Sox for at least two to three more weeks, um, especially since now he's going to have to let his hip rest and then do a rehab assignment. 
Next, Nate Avaldi coming off back in, uh, back inflammation injury. Just made a start in Worcester. He's been out since June 12th, also battling a hip injury as well. Uh, he went three-plus innings, two earned runs, three strikeouts, five hits, no walks. He's expected to join the Red Sox on Friday when they play the Yankees. Next, another Red Sox pitcher who's hurt, James Paxton. He's recovering from Tommy John surgery. He's set to return to the Red Sox pitching rotation or the bullpen. I'm not sure where he'll be, uh, but he's set to return in August. According to MassLive.com's Chris Cotillo, he has begun throwing breaking balls in his bullpen sessions, which is a good sign, showing that he's had a lot of progress uh, with his elbow now over the last nine months or so. Uh, Matt Bonds coming off a right shoulder inflammation injury, uh, threw an inning in the Florida Complex League um, a few days ago, gave up a double, a home run, a double to start the game. Uh, total three earned runs, three hits, and one inning pitched. Uh, so not a good sign for Matt Bonds, especially a guy that's been struggling all year long. He's been struggling, honestly, ever since he signed that major contract right before the All-Star break, just about a year ago now. Uh, so not a great start for him there. Three earned runs and one inning pitched, especially the way he started the game. Double home or double. Couldn't get him out in the first three batters. Next, Garrett Whitlock pitched in Friday's game for the Worcester Red Sox. Went two innings, allowing six hits, two runs, no walks, three strikeouts, with 34 pitches, 26 of those being strikes. He's expected to join the Red Sox bullpen, I think, on Friday, or at least later in the week. So maybe just right before the All-Star break, maybe he'll come back Saturday or Sunday. Uh, Chris Sales, I said, will be making his MLB season debut tonight in Tampa Bay after a rib injury uh, that kept him out for half of the season. He's pitched a couple minor league rehab starts now, so this will be his MLB season debut tonight. Um, he has been battling injuries, honestly, since the 2019 season, so hopefully he can stay healthy now. He's had a ton of injuries to his elbow, his back, and now his rib, which was keeping him out for the first half of this season. Hopefully he can stay healthy in the second half of the season to be a major boost to that Red Sox pitching staff. The next guy, Michael Walker, who was placed in the I.O. with the right shoulder inflammation. He's expected to miss some time now as well. Uh, that now makes Nick Pavetta the only Red Sox starter to not miss time this season. Especially for a guy like Walker, it's a lot harder to lose a guy that's been pitching so well. He's really been the ace with Nate Evaldi and Chris Sale being out. He's been pitching so well. He's been the best Red Sox offseason pickup uh, so far. And it's tough to see him go down with shoulder inflammation. So hopefully he's back after the All-Star break. Then Rich Hill coming back from a left knee strain, uh, which he suffered in a game against the Chicago Cubs. He's played catch before games. Um, it's supposed to be back in the next few weeks per Chris Cotillo. So as you can see, the Red Sox just have not had any luck at all within their pitching staff or just injuries in general, especially to such key players, Chris Sale, Nate Evaldi, Michael Walker. They haven't had any health this season, so hopefully the Red Sox can get healthy in the second half of the season after the All-Star break and really make a run. Uh, so now I'm going to talk about the Red Sox-Yankee series. Heading into the series, the Red Sox were 11-21 versus the AL East, 0-7 in series against the AL East, and winless in nine total series against the AL East heading into this series against the Yankees. Uh, the Yankees going into this had the best record of baseball, 61-24, which was the third best record through 85 games in the franchise's history. Uh, the Yankees have the best team, OPS, 771. And heading into this series against the Red Sox, Aaron Judge, was the current front runner of the AL MVP with 30 home runs, 66 RBIs. First in home runs and RBIs in the MLB, fourth in OPS with the 980 OPS, and also leads the major leagues in total bases with 193 total bases on the season. Uh, one thing that you can tell evidently from this Red Sox-Yankees series was that defense has been an issue for the Red Sox, and it continues to be uh, with Dahlbeck, Cordero, or Royal all struggling, trying to play positions that they're not really meant to play. Cordero's not supposed to be playing first base. Arroyo's not supposed to be playing right field. Dahlbeck's not supposed to be playing first base. 
they were just messing up left and right that entire series against the Yankees, and it was just evident that Red Sox team needs to invest in a first baseman. The MLB trade deadline's coming up, and this Red Sox team needs a first baseman more than anything. A defensive first baseman that can stop balls and also scoop balls since Cordero and Dahlbeck can't do either of those. And also a first baseman that can, that can protect the plate and hit. Cordero and Dahlbeck strike out just about every at-bat, it seems like, especially in the key moments. Besides Cordero having one hot streak about a month ago now, which I was talking about earlier in my podcast, uh, probably episode 4, 5, or 6 now, when he had a really good run, he hasn't been great at all at the plate. He had a couple hot streaks. Dahlbeck really hasn't had a great streak all season. And then Arroyo's just been atrocious in right field. Those are three players right there that are playing positions that they shouldn't be. And I would blame them for not making the plays. But at the end of the day, it comes down to High and Bloom not getting the Red Sox a first baseman in the offseason, not getting the Red Sox someone that can play right field, not getting enough utility guys that can play right field and can play other positions because you're stretching on guys, putting Cordero at first base and Dahlbeck at first base and Arroyo in right field. They're playing positions they don't belong playing. And if you look at it, defensive runs saved, which I'm going to break down a ton of statistics here, defensive runs saves is a statistic um, that breaks down basically a player's entire defensive performance by attempting to measure how many runs a player has saved defensively. And this comes from the Baseball Reference website page. Uh, It takes into account errors, range, outfield time, double playability. So all in all, it quantifies a player's entire defensive performance. uh, And the Red Sox have not been doing well in this category. Christian Arroyo has negative two defensive runs saved on the year. Bobby Dahlbeck, among qualified first basemen in the major leagues uh, that have played over 450 innings on the season. Bobby Dahlbeck is tied with Anthony Rizzo and four others for worst among first basemen in the MLB uh, with negative four defensive runs saved. Rizzo has 22 home runs, so his defensive liability out there this year isn't really comparable to Bobby Dahlbeck. Dahlbeck's not helping you out at the plate or defensively. Dating back to last season, Bobby Dahlbeck has negative 11 defensive runs saved, which is worst among qualified first basemen in the major leagues. He's the second most errors among qualified first basemen, dating back to last season as well, with 13 errors. Franchi Cordero, yet again, another player that's been struggling defensively. He's tied with Pete Alonso and one other player for second worst in defensive runs saved among first basemen with 230 innings played this season. As I said, Cordero tied with Pete Alonso. Both of them have negative three defensive runs saved, which is second worst in the MLB among first basemen that have played 230 innings. It's not all bad, though, at the end of the day. Trevor Story, he's eighth in the major leagues among qualified fielders in defensive runs saved, uh, no matter the position that is. So with nine runs saved, he's eighth among all qualified fielders in the major leagues, regardless of what position they play. So that's very impressive. But then again, it's not all great. Uh, Jaron Durant, dating back to last season, has negative nine defensive runs saved uh, among outfields that have played a minimum of 350 innings. And according to WEEI's Brian Barrett, Jaron Duran is 61st out of 64 center fielders in the major leagues in defensive runs saved since last season, uh, which isn't impressive at all. Jaron Duran, obviously, his defense has not been flashy. It's just been he's been getting a base a ton, so he has to stay in the lineup. Obviously, Jackie Bradley Jr. is a better defensive player than any Red Sox player for the most part besides Trevor Story. But the thing is with Jackie Bradley Jr. is he's not getting on base enough to stay in the lineup every single night. Although I love Jackie Bradley Jr. I think the Red Sox best lineup is Jaron Duran at center, even though he's not the best defensive center fielder. But the amount of times he gets on base as the leadoff hitter is a lot better than Kike Hernandez when he's healthy. And I think in right field, Rob Ruff Snyder is the best 
right fielder for the Red Sox, especially considering how well he's been hitting for this Red Sox team. I think Kike Hernandez should lose his leadoff spot. I think he should also lose his spot in center field. I think Jaron Duran's better. Um, Kike's obviously a better fielder, but Jaron Duran's offense has been too good this season, and Kike Hernandez was a dead out for the most part. A lot of the season he was leading off. The next player I want to talk about is Rafael Devers. Although Devers has gotten a lot better with his defense over the last year or so, but he still has the most errors among all Major League Baseball third basemen since the start of the 2021 season. The next closest is Philadelphia Phillies third baseman Alec Bohm, who has 23 errors, so 10 less than Rafael Devers over the last season and a half. Devers is tied with Bo Bichette for the most errors in all of baseball since the 2021 season with 33 errors. So Devers has obviously gotten better defensively. He's a great arm. And he'll have flashes over a week or two that he's playing very well defensively, and then he'll have a couple games where he's missing balls that he should get, and obviously that adds up to 33 total errors over a season and a half. But he's definitely improved at third base, and honestly is hitting so good that you can't even complain about his defensive uh, abilities out there. So now I'm going to break down the Red Sox-Yankees series. Thursday was the opener. Josh Winkowski struggled on the mound for the Red Sox. Five innings pitched, allowing six earned runs, five walks, and two strikeouts. One positive for the Red Sox was Rafael Devis crushing the ball. He had two home runs off Garrett Cole for a combined 859 feet between those two home runs. He's now 7 of 23 in his career against Garrett Cole with a 304 batting average, six home runs, 15 RBIs, a 1087 slugging percentage, and a 144 OPS against Garrett Cole. He's the most home runs off Garrett Cole among any batter in the major leagues with six home runs. Garrett Cole has been struggling against all of the Red Sox since the 2021 season, so it's not just Devis. Since the start of the 2021 season, Garrett Cole in seven starts against the Red Sox and 34 innings pitched, has allowed 37 hits, 10 home runs, has a 6.09 ERA, 15 walks, and a 1.53 whip. Just saw that uh, in a statistic that was tweeted by Jared Carabas, and honestly, it shows that the Red Sox have been dominating Cole over the last year and a half, and that's a positive for the Red Sox, even though we end up losing this game. One positive thing is that the Red Sox know they can hit Garrett Cole, and that's going to be huge if the Red Sox end up playing the Yankees in the playoffs. Being able to hit against Garrett Cole is going to be a huge, huge, huge advantage for this Red Sox team. One of Rafael Devis' home runs came in the fifth inning. He cut the deficit to one. Sox were down 6-5 to five, uh, after he hit that home run, but that was the closest they got. Devis hit a three-run home run in the fifth, made it 6-5, to five, as I said, but the Red Sox ended up losing still. Josh Johnson was a menace for the Red Sox in the whole series. In that Thursday night game, went 2-4 for four with four RBIs, hit a grand slam in the third inning, and honestly, that was just felt like a dagger. Even though the Red Sox ended up coming back and making it a 6-5 game, anytime you give up a grand slam in the third inning, it just seems like you're digging out of a hole that you can't get out of. Then in Friday's contest against the Yankees, things were just bad yet again. Sox end up losing 12 to 5, despite only being out hit 14 to 13 by the Yankees. The Red Sox had 13 hits, but still lost 12 to 5, which is honestly awful. It just shows situational hitting was not there for this Red Sox team. What was even worse for the Red Sox was their poor pitching. Uh, the Red Sox gave up a solo home run to Matt Cobbett to make an 8 to 2 game. Uh, Gave the Yankees an 8-2 lead. He ended up hitting his ninth dinger as a Yankee in 24 games. Uh, the abysmal fielding for the Red Sox was just awful. Christian Arroyo in right field, where I just talked about not being a great defensive right fielder by any means, uh, was lost on a fly ball, uh, hit by Joey Gallo. Gallo ended up getting a triple off of it. Uh, Arroyo went to full panic mode, couldn't find the ball, ended up doing kind of a hot feet situation where he's jumping up and down, doesn't know where the ball is. He ended up finding it behind him, relays it to Trevor Story, who hosed Gallo at the plate before he could get inside the park home run. So 
at least the Red Sox end up saving a run there. And I guess Christian Warrior at least recovered and found the ball and threw it in. You know, made a nice relay to Trevor Story, who made a nice play at the plate. But uh, it was best said by Chris Cotillo in his lead for his game article on MassLive.com that there was an abomination of a baseball game held Friday at Fenway Park featuring poor pitching, multiple injuries, and fielders completely lost in routine plays. There was also the annual New York-Boston media game held hours earlier. So very funny line there by Chris Cotillo. He played in the New York-Boston media game, which is an annual thing between the Red Sox beat writers and the New York Yankees beat writers. Uh, I think we ended up losing the Boston team, ended up losing uh, to the New York team. But he, that's just a great line. It shows that the Red Sox were performing worse than the Boston media team on Friday at Fenway. So it's a very catchy lead, gets you locked in. Uh, so very great writing by him. Uh, one positive note for the Red Sox was that J.D. Martinez recovered well. I know he's been in a slump. He was 3-4 for in the game. Rob Refside was 4-5 for five with two runs scored. Trevor Story hit his 15th home run. So at least some things to build off of for that Red Sox team in a tough Friday night game. Obviously, Christian Roy being lost in right field just seemed like the Red Sox could not recover from that. Especially Christian Roy. I don't think he could recover from that. That's why I think he went to the I.L. just to take some time off and clear his head. Um, and give him a couple of days off so at least it medals over before he gets back out on the field. If he played again on Saturday, the Yankees fans would be torturing him out there just because he made a horrible play in right field the day before. So I think it's a good thing putting him on the I.L., let him relax for a couple of days, forget about it, and then get back on the field after the All-Star break. Um, Connor Seabold gave up nine runs in Friday's contest, seven of those being earned. Walked two batters, struck out two, allowed nine hits. Also gave him a home run at 2.2 innings pitched. So he gave up nine hits. In nine runs, seven of those being earned in two and two-thirds innings. That's awful. So the Red Sox just had no luck on Friday. Horrible pitching, horrible fielding. Also injuries that like Chris Cotillo said with Seabold end up, ended up getting hurt. And also Christian Royal getting hurt. The Red Sox just had no luck. Um, and also things just got worse. The Red Sox ended up having to pitch Jackie Bradley Jr. in the ninth inning, which is honestly exciting. It's exciting seeing a, uh, a, a position play a pitch. But it just means that you have no shot in a game. It just shows you surrendering, which just is tough for a Red Sox team, especially who's been struggling so much against the AL East. If you're throwing a position player against the Yankees, you know you're down by 10 runs you're, or you're down by 5 runs and you have no chance of coming back. Um, that's just what the story of this game was. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. in the ninth inning pitched along one run, one hit, walked three batters, did strike out, though, DJ LeMahieu. Um, he did a nice... Johnny Cueto impression by mixing up his delivery and his tempo, hit 94 in a fastball as well. Um, so Jackie Bradley Jr., at least an exciting night for him being able to pitch um, his first time in the major leagues, uh, which is awesome. And now to move on to Saturday's game, it was just a way different story for this Red Sox team. It was a recovery this Red Sox team really needed, especially after going down 2-0 in the series to the Yankees on Thursday and Friday. The Red Sox responded in a huge way, ended up winning the game 6-5 in 10 innings. Cutter Crawford was absolutely excellent on the mound. Five and two-thirds innings pitched, along one earned run, two walks, six strikeouts. Did allow a home run, though, uh, but one earned run in 5.2 innings. You'll take any day of the week. Rob Refsnett hit his third home run of the year the sixth inning to cut the Red Sox deficit uh, to 3-2, to two, so cut the deficit to 1. And one interesting thing about this Red Sox-Yankees game was that the Yankees were 48-0 in leading after seven innings, were 61-0 this season when leading after eight innings, which was the third longest streak to begin a season over the last 20 years according to Molly Rivera of ESPN. But an interesting thing is that 48-0 after seven innings this year and 61-0 after eight innings this year when leading after seven and eight innings. And the Red Sox ended up breaking that, making it 48-1 and 61-1. Uh, key moments for that Red Sox team. Sox are down 3-2 to two in the bottom of the eighth uh, with two outs. J.D. Martinez doubled, got things going for the Red Sox. Gita Downs ends, ends up pinch running for him, gets a second base. Then Zena Bogarts reaches first base with a walk. So two outs, runners on first and second with the Sox down one run in the bottom of the eighth. Alex Verdugo steps up to the plate, 
0-2 count and singles to left field off of Yankees shutdown closer Clay Holmes, who was an all-star this year. Downs ended up scoring to tie the game. So the Mookie Betts trade right there tied the score with Jeter Downs obviously being part of that Mookie deal. He scores the game-tying run there, and then obviously Alex Verdugo was part of that Mookie Betts trade. Ends up having a huge hit in the bottom of the eighth to tie the game. Then, after both teams going scoreless in the ninth inning, Judge started off the 10th inning with an RBI double. Yankees ended up going 5-3, to three, going into the bottom of the 10th. So the Sox were down 2, needed 2 to tie to send the game to the 11th, or 3 to win the game. In the bottom of the 10th inning, Rob Refsnyder led it off with a single. Durant went to third base after starting off the inning as the ghost runner at second. So first and third, Jeter Downs coming up to the plate with one out. And he ends up having his first career major league hit, uh, which was an RBI single. Cuts the deficit to 5-4. to four. Then Xander Bogats comes up. With one out and runners on first and second. Hits a hard ground ball to Josh Donaldson at third base. Josh Donaldson honestly could have turned two and ended the game, but he ended up bobbling it. Recovers well, throws a rifle across the diamond to first base to get Xander Bogats out at first. So gives the Red Sox some breathing room with two outs and runners on second and third with Alex Verdugo coming up to the plate. Verdugo already had a game-tying hit in the eighth inning where he scored Gita Downs uh, in the bottom of the eighth with two outs. But this moment here was an even bigger moment for this Red Sox team. Alex Rodrigo's back was against the wall. He responded yet again with a sharp line drive into right field, scoring Rob Refsnyder. That would tie the game. Then Gita Downs ends up coming in, sliding into home plate head first for a walk-off win. The Red Sox' second walk-off win of the season. It was an absolute electric moment. Uh, definitely the recovery that the Red Sox team needed. Quite the day for Gita Downs as well. Start of the day in the Worcester Red Sox lineup, got the call up with Christian Royal going to the IL, ends up getting an RBI single for his first major league hit, scored the game-tying run in the 8th inning, and also the game-winning run in the 10th inning. Uh, the Red Sox winning the game now made the Yankees 61-1 after leading through 8 innings, uh, and that obviously shows that the Yankees' bullpen has been a lead all season, so being the Yankees' only loss after leading through 8 innings is just absolutely nuts. I'd say that was the most electric moment of the season for this Red Sox team. Uh, definitely as a fan as well, I think it was the most electric moment. It was definitely my favorite moment, especially struggling against the Yankees on Thursday and Friday, being able to recover on Saturday and play that well as something this Red Sox team really needed, especially with the AL East. I mean, they're in a 14-game stretch now against the Tampa Bay Rays and the New York Yankees. You can't be losing back-to-back games, especially in the fashion the Red Sox lost Thursday and Friday. So recovering Saturday gave the Red Sox a huge amount of momentum going into Sunday's game. Uh, and the Sunday game would end up being a huge win, so, so the Red Sox would split the series with the Yankees. Uh, one more thing I want to say about the Friday night game uh, was that social media really won that game. Uh, a lot of people were tweeting out, saying on Instagram as well, uh, that the Red Sox won the Mookie Betts trade uh, with Gita Downs scoring the game tying run in the 8th inning and the game winning walk-off run in the 10th inning, both of which uh, he scored off of a hit from Alex Verdugo. So there you have it. The Red Sox won the Mookie Betts trade uh, with Gita Downs scoring the game winning run in the 10th, the game tying run in the 8th, and Alex Verdugo having two huge hits with runners in scoring position with two outs to tie the game in the eighth and also for the Red Sox to walk off with a two-run single in the bottom of the tenth. So very exciting night for the Red Sox. Um, and obviously social media obviously uh, gets to play a role in that, uh, saying the Red Sox won that Mookie Betts trade. I love to see that. And I'm a big fan of both players, Verdugo and Downs. So I was excited and thrilled to see them come up huge for the Red Sox, especially in a moment where the Red Sox really needed to shine after struggling in both of those games against the Yankees on Thursday and Friday. So Sunday's game, the Red Sox were playing on Sunday Night Baseball against the Yankees. The Sox were down 6-2 going into the bottom of the third inning and actually just went off, just turned things, completely flipped the script, scored nine unanswered runs over the next six innings to win the game 11-6. The Red Sox had three huge home runs 
Franchi Cordero had a two-run home run in the second inning. Christian Arroyo hit a home run as well. And then G.D. Martinez hit his first home run since June 14th to tie the game in the fifth inning. It was a two-run shot, which was the turning point of the game. So with the Sox being down 6-2, they scored nine straight runs, won the game 11-6. One key moment was the Sox were up 7-6 in the bottom of the seventh with bases loaded. No outs with Trevor Story coming up to the plate. Smoked a ball that he liked off the center field wall. Feet from getting out. Honestly, should have got out. Uh, bases clearing double, ended up scoring three runs on that, gave the Red Sox a huge lead, really split the game open, um, and gave the Red Sox a huge spit, series split. Um, that was the first time the Sox uh, started four rookie starters in four consecutive games. So Bayo against the Tampa Bay Rays, Winkowski, Seabold, and Crawford, four straight games the Red Sox started rookie pitches. Uh, but they ended up splitting the series against the Yankees, so can't complain at the end of the day. So this year to date with the Yankees, the Red Sox are 3-4 and four against the Yankees this season and still face them for another three games this upcoming weekend. The 14-game stretch against the Yankees and the Rays is the most crucial part of this Red Sox season. We're in the midst of it right now. Three or four of the Red Sox losses to the Yankees this year were by two runs or less. So that shows the Red Sox have been right there with them head-to-head. Maybe not in the standings, which Pete Abraham said best, that the Red Sox really aren't too far away from them on the field. In the standings, it might seem like the Red Sox and Yankees have a huge gap between them. But when they face head-to-head, that's not the same. That's not the story. The Red Sox are right there with them. And tell me right now, I don't think the Yankees want to see the Red Sox when they play in the playoffs. I don't think the Yankees want to face this Red Sox team especially when you consider how much the Red Sox have been raking against Garrett Cole over the last year and a half. The Red Sox have owned Garrett Cole over the last year and a half, which Jared Carabas, you know, tweeted out and I just pointed out earlier in this episode. The Yankees do not want to face this Red Sox team in the playoffs. And I don't think anybody honestly wants to because if this Red Sox team gets healthy with Chris Sale, Nate Avaldi, Garrett Whitlock, maybe add another bullpen piece and hopefully a first baseman, maybe like Josh Bell, this Red Sox team will be very dangerous come playoff time. And the Red Sox currently hold the first wild card spot going into tonight's game with the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, according to Pete Abraham, the Red Sox starting pitches are 0-6 with a 7-8-4 ERA in the last 14 games. So Chris Sale really needs help out this Red Sox pitching staff tonight. Uh, the last Red Sox starting pitcher to win a game was Rich Hill on June 26th in Cleveland. So that's over two weeks now. The Red Sox haven't had a starting pitcher win a game. Uh, so hopefully Chris Sale breaks that tonight, goes five strong innings, and the Red Sox end up getting a win. So now I'm going to transition to the MLB and talk about news within the league as a whole. To start off, Wanda Franco, star shortstop of the Tampa Bay Rays, will be out for five to eight weeks with a handmade injury. Just got surgery to repair the handmade bone in his right wrist. He was only back for a week after missing three weeks in June with a quad injury and is now set to miss another five to eight weeks with a handmade injury after only being back uh, for a week. So that's a major blow to that Tampa Bay Rays lineup. He got hurt after fouling off a 100-mile-an-hour fastball against Reds flamethrower Hunter Green. Felt discomfort in his wrist, and after that, ended up knowing he was going to be missing some time. I don't think he knew it was to the extent of five to eight weeks, but that's what it is. So uh, hopefully he gets back healthy soon since he's a very exciting player to watch uh, and one of the best players in the major leagues when he's healthy. Um, Kevin Kamaya, yet again another Tampa Bay Ray that's hurt, returned to the I.L. for the second time this season with a left hip inflammation injury. Uh, won't be a minimal I.L. stint, they're saying, so he'll probably be out a few weeks. Um, another player I want to talk about now is Shohei Otani. Made the All-Star team as a starting DH and the pitcher as well. He extended his streak of scoreless starts without an earned run to four straight outings. First to do so since Jacob DeGrom in 2019. According to ESPN, he's the first player in the history of the MLB since RBIs became an official statistic to strike out 10 opposing batters as a pitcher, record two RBIs as a batter, and also steal a base as a runner all in the same game. Uh, in last week's game against the Miami Marlins, he went seven innings on the mound, 10 strikeouts, two hits, two RBIs. Uh, also, when he was batting, 
Fastball hit 100 miles an hour. Since June 9th, he is hitting 289 with a 981 OPS. Eight home runs, 22 RBIs, 12 runs, four doubles. Since June 9th, he is 5-0 on the mound in five appearances. One earned run in 33.2 innings pitched. 46 strikeouts to nine walks. 16 hits, two runs allowed, one of those being earned. 139 opponent batting average. 64 strike percentage and has allowed three doubles over that five-game stretch. 13 singles. No home runs or triples. So he's allowed 16 hits, three of them being doubles, and 13 of them being singles. No home runs or triples allowed over that five-game stretch. With just one earned run and 33.2 innings pitched, you can't dispute he deserved to be an all-star as a pitcher and as a DH. I know a lot of people get mad about that since he might take a spot in both as a DH and a pitcher, but he really has earned the right to be a starter as a DH. I know obviously Jordan Alvarez has had a great season, but if you look at what Shelly Otani's been doing at the plate, and as a pitcher, especially considering that L.A. Angels team has not helped him out at all or Mike Trout out at all, he deserves to be a starter as a DH and then also make the team as a pitcher. What he's been doing on the mound, you just do not see every day. 5-0 in his last five appearances, one earned run at 33.2 innings pitched, 46 strikeouts to nine walks. You do not see that every day. 139 appointed batting average. He's been absolutely dominant on the mound, and there's no other player in the major leagues like Shohei Otani. On a nightly basis, he's doing stuff at the plate and on the mound. You're just never going to see that again in the MLB. One interesting thing I saw from Jeremy Frank, who crunches random MLB stats on Twitter, was that the highest slugging percentage with runners in scoring position in the last 50 years for batters with a minimum of 400 plate appearances. Shelly Otani is first with a 621 slugging percentage with runners in scoring position. Mike Trout was second with a 616 slugging percentage with runners in scoring position over the last 50 years with a minimum of 400 plate appearances. Then you look at lowest slugging percentage allowed, so for pitchers, with runners in scoring position in the last 50 years, minimum of 200 batters faced. Shoei Otani is first with a 2-1-1 slugging percentage. So he's the highest slugging percentage with runners in scoring position as a batter, 621, and then he's the lowest slugging percentage allowed, so as a pitcher, with runners in scoring position with a 2-1-1 slugging percentage. So that just shows how dominant he is as a pitcher and how dominant he is as a batter. Very dynamic player, and you're just never going to see another Shoei Otani in baseball. And that's why I think everyone has to appreciate his greatness, and that's why I talk about him in a lot of episodes, since he really is such a headline every single time he steps on the field. You're seeing something you never see, and that's why I feel like Shoei Otani should be talked about more. I know ESPN primarily just focuses on the NFL and NBA year-round, but I feel like with the MLB, you have to be talking about Shoei Otani's greatness, especially since we're living in an era where he's been dominating over the last two years now. He's been such a great player and just a player that you want to watch every single night. Whether you're an Angels fan or you're not, if Shohei Otani's on the mound or he's at the plate, you're going to watch. If he's on the mound for a game and it's on TV and on ESPN, you're going to tune in because you're seeing something that you just never see. He's like the the modern-day Babe Ruth. He's so dynamic and such a great player, and that's why I love talking about him every single time I get the opportunity to. So now I'm going to talk about the All-Star rosters. The Red Sox have three players that are going to the All-Star game. Rafael Devers will be starting for the American League at third base. 327 batting average, 19 home runs, and 977 OPS. With 51 runs batted in. He's now a two-time All-Star second straight year. He's starting at third base for the AL. Xander Bogots will be joining him as an All-Star the fourth time in his career. Started last season for the American League. This season, Tim Anderson will be starting uh, for the American League. Tim Anderson of the Chicago White Sox. Xander Bogots on the season, 315 batting average, 7 home runs, 36 RBIs, and 847 OPS. Power numbers are definitely down, but he's only hit over 24 home runs or more. One time in his 10-year career, so I guess you're not going to expect him to hit 30 home runs every year. But just seven home runs at this point definitely is down in his average of where he is typically at this point in the season. 
The third player that the Red Sox are going to be sending to the All-Star game is J.D. Martinez. He will be a replacement of All-Star injured slugger from the Houston Astros, Jordan Alvarez. This will be J.D. Martinez's fifth All-Star selection. He's definitely cooled off as of late at the plate, but still hitting 313 on the year with nine home runs and an 880 OPS. In all 76 games he's played this season, he's only DH, so his only chance of getting into the All-Star game would be at the DH position. Uh, he ends up getting in because Alvarez's injury. Martinez hit 232 in June after hitting 406 in May. Had a 713 OPS in June after a 1071 OPS in May. So it's evident that his numbers went down from May to June. He definitely struggled heavily in the month of June, as you could see. Uh, that obviously played a role in his batting average dropping from 345 to 313 in the course of one month. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred announced that Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera will be added to the All-Star rosters as a way to give them their special recognition that they deserve. Pujols will be retiring after the season. I'm not sure about Miggy, but as of now, it seems they could probably play one more year. But uh, he's added to the All-Star roster with Albert Pujols. Pujols obviously playing for the NL since he's on the Cardinals, and Miguel Cabrera since he's on the Tigers playing for the AL. Mookie Betts, Andrew Benatendi, Kyle Schrober are All-Stars. That three players right there that the Red Sox could definitely use this season. Kyle Schrober should have stayed and been a first baseman for this Red Sox team. Tough to see Hyam Bloom move on from those three guys. Uh, but Andrew Benatendi should have still been with the Red Sox. Could have been playing right field right now. And then Kyle Schrober should have been at first base for this team. When you have Christian Arroyo playing right field and Franchi Cordero and Bobby Dalbeck playing first base, Kyle Schrober would have been a huge upgrade. Just offensively, he'd be an upgrade, even if his defense wasn't that great. How great of a hit a Kyle Schrober's had this season? Obviously, he's not hitting for average like he usually is. You think he's in around 210 this season, but he's got 28 home runs. He'd be producing offensively at a position that the Red Sox have got no production. You get nothing out of Dahlbeck and Cordero on a nightly basis. So, would have been happy to keep Schwarber on the Red Sox, but I'm happy to see him on the Phillies. Making an all-star team is very exciting, so congratulations to him. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about, John Schreiber. I think he should have been an all-star. Third best ERA among all relievers in the major leagues with a .62 ERA. Jorge Lopez, Clay Holmes, and Emmanuel Classe were the three American League relievers to make the all-star team. Classe was the AL reliever of the month in June uh, for the Cleveland Guardians. 15 innings pitched, no runs allowed, 11 saves, 16 strikeouts to no walks, .47 whip, and a .294 OPS, opponent OPS. Uh, and that came from MLB Network graphic. Um, I feel like at the end of the day, though, I think Schreiber could have made it in, maybe been the fourth reliever, and then obviously take out a position player that made it in or another pitcher. But them only taking three relievers just made it tough for John Schreiber to make it in. And at the end of the day, obviously Jorge Lopez has had a great year for the Orioles. He's their all-star. Clay Holmes has had a great year for the Yankees. And then Manuel Classe had such a dominant month of June that you can't not put him in the all-star game. And he had 11 saves, 15 innings pitched, no runs allowed, 16 strikeouts to no walks. And a 294 opponent OPS with a .47 whip in June. You can't not have him in the All-Star game. So tough to not see Schreiber make it in. But at the end of the day, only three relievers made it. And those three guys had a great season as well. So uh, maybe next year for Schreiber. And hopefully he continues to play well for this Red Sox team. Especially with the bullpen that the Red Sox have has not been playing well at all. So Schreiber being the only consistent player in that bullpen uh, has been a huge addition to this Red Sox team this year. And the Red Sox definitely need him to stay hot especially in this part of the season when they got 14 games against the Yankees and the Rays. This is, be, this is the most crucial part of the Red Sox season. They can't mess up. They can't be having uh, blown saves like they've been having. I think they're second in baseball right now to the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, so hopefully we continue to improve health-wise, and hopefully our bullpen's a lot better a month or so from now when Whitlock's back in it. And hopefully you got Chris Sale staying healthy in the starting rotation. you got James Paxton back in August, Michael Walker back, Rich Hill back. Who knows what this bullpen's going to look like since – one of the starters, whether it's Waka, 
Walker will probably stay in the rotation. Probably Walker, Avaldi, Sale on the rotation. Maybe Brian Bayo makes a transition to the bullpen. This Red Sox bullpen should be a lot better, hopefully a month from now when guys are healthy again. But uh, obviously we'll see. Uh, now I'm going to move on to the home run derby. Uh, so far, the only contestants, uh, five players. Pete Alonso, 23 home runs, 72 RBIs on the season. Leads the MLB in RBIs with 72. Two-time All-Star Alonso has been in two home run derbies in his career and has won both of them, bringing home a million dollars for both of those um, in each of those. So $2 million total, but a million dollars in each, uh, according to ESPN. The next player is Ronald Acuna Jr., three-time All-Star now, starting for the NL in the outfield. He has eight home runs, 22 RBIs at 54 games a season after coming off a devastating ACL injury last year. Speed is still there. He got 17 stolen bases. As for him in the home run derby, he lost in the semifinals of the 2019 home run derby, defeated Josh Bell in the first round, and then ended up losing to Pete Alonso in the semifinals. Alonso ended up only beating Acuna by one home run. Acuna had 19 home runs in the round, while Alonso had 20. So very close matchup there, and who knows, maybe they'll play each other again in this one. Juan Soto, second straight year for him in the home run derby. He's got 17 home runs on the year. 23-year-old star outfielder of the Washington Nationals. He's set to get an MLB record-setting contract at some point from this Nationals team. Right now, it's projected to be 13 years, $425 million at around $33 million per year. Um, but that's just according to reports. Hopefully, they can get a deal done for him, especially considering they have no one else to pay except for Juan Soto. He's their only star, really, especially considering they're going to be a team that's going to be selling heavily at the deadline with a lot of moving contracts like Josh Bell, an expiring contract there. That's going to be something that's going to be moved. Uh, so hopefully they can get Juan Soto a deal and pay him the money that he deserves. Uh, but anyways, Juan Soto, uh, two years now, this will be his second year in a row in the uh, MLB Home Run Derby. Uh, I saw in an ESPN article that Soto had the longest Home Run Derby home run last year, 520 feet, uh, which is the longest during the entire StatCast era during the Home Run Derby. So he's definitely an exciting player to watch. Kyle Schwarber, a guy I just talked about uh, for the Red Sox, who should, the Red Sox should have kept for a player that the Red Sox should have brought back. He has 28 home runs on the season for the Philadelphia Phillies in 85 games. He had 32 home runs in 115 games last year. Hit 266 last year for batting average. Uh, with more home runs this year, though, he's a lower batting average of 219. So 32 home runs to 266 last year. He's an all-star now for the second time of his career. 12 home runs, 27 RBIs in 27 games in June. Hitting 272. He was a runner up in the 2018 home run derby to Bryce Hopper. I saw in another ESPN article that Schwarber's 55 total home runs at National Park in the home run derby was the most of any 2018 home run derby participant. He had 16 in the first round, 21 in the semifinals, and 18 in the finals. Just didn't have enough to win it, obviously, against Bryce Hopper in the finals. But he definitely has the power to win it this year, especially considering 28 home runs were only at the All Star break. The last player that is committed as of now is Albert Pujols, 42 years old. He becomes the oldest homer derby participant ever. Previous high was uh, Barry Bonds at 39 years old in 2004. The 11-time All-Star, three-time MVP, two-time World Series winner. Earned the batting title in 2003 as well, hitting 359 and two-time gold glove. Has a ton of accolades, obviously, that I just listed. I think a homer derby would be a great one to add on to there, but I just don't know if he has the power still to do it. Uh, this will be the fifth time he's competing in the home run derby. He participated in the 2003, 2007, 2009, 2015 home run derbies. Uh, he will be retiring after this year, so going out on top as a champion in the home run derby would definitely be exciting, but I just don't think he's the power to do it. This is his 22nd season in the MLB. He's got five home runs, 19 RBIs, and is hitting 216 on the year. He had 20 home runs only one time over the last five MLB seasons. That came in 2019 when he hit 23, uh, but I just don't think he's the power left to do it. 
Uh, he becomes the seventh player in MLB history with five-plus home run derby appearances, and that comes from ESPN stat as well, joining Mark McGuire, Prince Fielder, Sammy Sosa, David Ortiz, Ken Griffey Jr., and Barry Bonds. So hopefully Albert Pujols makes a run in the home run derby. I think that would be obviously an exciting storyline to talk about, uh, but I just don't think he has the power to do it, as I said. So now I'm going to talk about the American League East. The AL East has been a powerhouse all season, and the Orioles have been a big reason this AL East has been getting so much attention over the last week or so. Uh, the Red Sox, the Rays, the Blue Jays, the Yankees, four playoff teams there all coming into the season with high hopes. Then the Orioles obviously coming in after three straight, four straight bad seasons. Uh, but right now, they are just one game under 500. The AL East has the best record of any division in the major leagues with a 241 and 190 record, a 559 winning percentage. Found that out in the Jumboy Media graphic. Uh, the next closest winning division is the NL West with a 523 winning percentage. So 523 to 559, obviously a big jump. Uh, so now to talk about the Orioles who have been just so hot over the last two weeks now. They're 43-44, and 44, two games out of the third wild card spot in the American League, 8-2 and two in the month of July. Since June 11th, the Orioles are 19-9, 130 runs for, 101 runs against with a 3-4-5 team ERA over that stretch. The 2021 record for the Orioles was 44-93. and 93. They are 43-44 and 44 with 75 games to go now on the year. The Orioles are 25 and 17 at home, while the Red Sox are only 23 and 20. So the Orioles have a better record at home at Camden Yards than the Red Sox do at Fenway Park, uh, which is obviously impressive. The Orioles had three walk-off wins in four days in the month of May, which is the first time the Orioles have done that in a stretch since 1994, and that came from an Elias Sports Bureau article. One interesting thing that I found out was that in mid-June, the Orioles had their first series win against the Tampa Bay Rays, which came a few weeks ago now. That was their first series win against the Tampa Bay Rays since they swept the Tampa Bay Rays in a three-game set, July 31st, August 2nd of the 2020 season. And that came from a Baltimore Sun article. The Orioles have three walk-off wins over their eight-game winning streak. Last Friday night, down 4-2 to two with two outs in the ninth inning. Rugnet Odor came up to the plate, singled with two strikes against them. Then the next player, Adley Rutschman, coming up to the plate. Rookie catcher, great player, uh, great prospect as well. Had an RBI double once again with the Orioles down to their final strike. He had two strikes against them. Then Cedric Mullins comes up to the plate with two strikes yet again for the third straight batter in a row. Mullins had an RBI single to tie the game. On a bad throw, he advances another base, gets a second. Trey Mancini comes up with two strikes against him, making it four straight Orioles batters coming down to their last strike with two outs. Mancini had a walk-off RBI single to score Cedric Mullins from second base. Very exciting moment for that Orioles team. Very resilient team this year, and there's something about them that's just different. Uh, they're tied for second in the major leagues over the last 10 games with an 8-2 record. They have the 4th best record in the major leagues over the last 20 games, 14-6 record. 6th best record in the major leagues over the last 30 games with a 19-11 record. The Orioles have won 8 straight games now, outscoring their opponents 41-27 to over that stretch. Coming off their first 4-game series sweep of the LA Angels since 2003. Longest winning streak since 2005. Now they reached with 8 games in a row. Longest win winning streak in the 2021 season was 3. They did that 6 times. Now they already defeated that heavily with an eight-game winning streak. They only had three, was the highest in 2021. Uh, so that just shows the Orioles have such great progress this year and really have just been just showing so much promise. The Orioles lost 115 games in 2018, 108 games in 2019, and 110 games in 2021. Obviously, the, the 2020 season was a shortened season, so you can't lose 100-plus games. But that's three years of the last three full MLB seasons, 2018, 2019, 2021, that the Orioles lost 108 Plus games, 115 in 2018, 108 in 2019, and 110 in 2021. 
And I just saw in a CBS Sports article that the Orioles are 29-20 since the middle of May after a six-game losing streak. Only the Red Sox, Yankees, and Astros have better records in the American League over that stretch. So they are right up there with every with the best teams of baseball, with everyone. They've been playing so well over the past month. It's great to see, honestly, baseball. The Orioles' average attendance for games this year is 16,552 fans. The last three games at home, 27,000, 32,000, and 19,000. Of course, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani playing in Baltimore plays a huge role of getting more fans to the game. But the Orioles' fan base is back. You can see it all over social media. You can see it at games. They're filling seats. People are buying jerseys. People are buying hats. People are all about it on Twitter and Instagram. And that's just exciting. It's just great to see a team that's been just on the bottom of the hierarchy in the major leagues for the past 10 years now, just about, that are just making a run and, and at least showing promise, showing progress after being a team that was just the, 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 the stomping grounds for every team in the major leagues, especially in the AL East. The Yankees, the Rays, the Blue Jays, the Red Sox. Being in a division with all of those teams that are spending money on players, besides the Rays, they don't spend too much money, but being in a division with the Red Sox and the Yankees who spend more money than just about any team in the major leagues, it's hard to compete. And this Orioles team, which I'm going to break down their entire payroll in a second, but it's just crazy how well this team has been playing with not much talent, honestly, overall. In June, the, the Baltimore Orioles had the 12th best pitching ERA in all of the major leagues with a 3.86 ERA. Ninth in July with a 3.39 ERA. Situational hitting has been huge for this Orioles team and has been a big reason they've been playing so well as of late. As I said, three walk-off wins so far in this eight-game winning streak. Also, the eighth in the MLB with a 248 batting average with two outs and runners in scoring position. So, as I just said, I broke down their walk-off win last Friday night, down two runs, down to their last strike. Four batters in a row, down by two runs with two outs, and then coming back, four straight hits with two strikes and two outs, and then winning the game. It just shows situational hitting has been something that the Orioles have definitely improved upon this year. Hitting 248 with runners in scoring position and two outs is good for uh, good enough for eighth in the major league. So very impressive there. Now to break down the Orioles' uh, total payroll. The Orioles currently have the lowest total payroll in the major leagues with $45 million. For perspective, the league average is $147 million uh, total payroll-wise. The LA Dodgers and New York Mets Total payrolls for all the players that have played for them this season, $260 million for the Dodgers and the Mets, $250 million for the Yankees. Those are the top three right there in the majors. Then you got uh, the Chicago White Sox, the LA Angels, who are 7th and 8th and highest payrolls in all of baseball with $196 and $190 million. The Orioles have a better record than both of those teams right there. The Orioles only have one All-Star. Jorge Lopez out of the bullpen had a great year. 174 ERA, 16 saves. He's a first-time All-Star this year, but only one all-star, and only have $45 million as a total payroll to work with. And they have a better record than the Chicago White Sox and the LA Angels over the 7th and 8th highest payrolls in all of baseball. Those payrolls for those two teams, $196 and $190 million respectively. You look at the Orioles, $45 million to work with. And they have only one all-star, and it's a guy in the bullpen who's a first-time all-star. They only have one all-star to work with and have $145 million less than the LA Angels and the Chicago White Sox, who they have a better record than both of those teams. And I have another crazy thing, another crazy statistic about payrolls. The New York Mets, which I just mentioned, who have the highest payroll in the major leagues with the LA Dodgers, Max Scherzer signed a three-year, $130 million deal with the New York Mets in the offseason for an average annual value of $43.33 million. So just about $1.5 million less than the whole Orioles roster has had for this entire season. 
The Orioles' current 26-man payroll, so the players that are on their current 26-man roster, $32.9 million, which is less than what Garrett Cole and Max Scherzer are making this season. Trey Mancini is the highest-paid player on this Orioles team, $7.5 million salary, which makes up 16.6% of the team's current payroll, which is absolutely nuts. Garrett Cole makes $36 million per year and only makes up 14.83% of the Yankees' payroll. So he makes up less of the Yankees' payroll at 14.83%, making $36 million per year, than Trey Mancini, who makes just $7.5 million, so just about $29 million less than what Garrett Cole's making on the Yankees, and makes up 2 more percent, two percent more of the Orioles' payroll. He makes up 16.6% of the team's payroll for the Baltimore Orioles at $7.5 million per year, with Garrett Cole making $36 million per year, is 14.83% of the Yankees' salary cap, so just about 2% less of the Yankees' salary cap, making just about $29 million more per year. That's absolutely nuts. Another thing, David Price is still on the Red Sox payroll for this year at $16 million per year since when the Red Sox traded Mookie Betts to the LA Dodgers. Part of the deal was taking on half of David Price's contract, obviously taking David Price on as well. But the $16 million that the Red Sox have given David Price this year is more than one-third of the Orioles' entire 26-man payroll for this season, which is nuts. That's for a guy that's not even playing for the Red Sox. He's making just about one-third, a little bit more than one-third of the Orioles' payroll for this entire season, which is nuts. That's just crazy. A guy that's not even playing for the Red Sox, that's playing for the Dodgers. He's making more than one-third of the Orioles' entire payroll, and he's not even playing for the Red Sox this year. That's just the reason that the MLB needs a salary floor. So teams need to spend a certain amount of money since the competitive advantage is just completely off balance. And you're looking at teams making, you know, signing guys at $36 million per year when the Orioles' current 26-man payroll is $32 million. Just absolutely nuts. And another thing about the Red Sox payroll is that they're still giving Manny Ramirez $2 million this year in deferred money. And he would be the fourth highest paid player on the Orioles' entire payroll. At making just $2 million, he'd be the fourth highest paid Orioles player. I digged even deeper into the MLB payrolls. Only four players in the Orioles' entire active roster of 26 players make over $1 million per year. The discrepancy of the Orioles' payroll compared to the rest of the MLB is truly astonishing. Only four players on that Orioles' entire roster make over $1 million. The Yankees have 19 of 26 players making over $1 million. The Orioles only have four. The Orioles' 26-man payroll, so their active 26 players, not their 2022 total payroll of all the guys that have played from this year, just their 26 active players right now have a total payroll of $32.6 million, which I've said now a ton. The league average 26-man payroll is $105 million. The Yankees' 26-man payroll right now, which is number one in the major leagues, $224.9 million. Nolan Arenado and Corey Seager make $32.5 million each. Francisco Lindor, Anthony Rendon, Steven Strasburg, Carlos Correa, Mike Trout, Garrett Cole, and Max Scherzer all make around $35-plus million per year. Scherzer are making $43.33 million per year. So that's nine players right there that I just named. Lindor, Rendon, Strasburg, Correa, Trout, Cole, Scherzer, Aaron Otto, and Seagard that are all making more money than the Orioles' entire payroll combined. So all 26 players in the Orioles are making less money than those nine players I just named. Only one all-star the Orioles have, that's Jorge Lopez, has been a great reliever for them. But in order for the Orioles to have any talent, they need to draft it. Because they're not going to sign a big name. They're never going to sign a Max Scherzer at $43.33 million per year. 
especially when, when the 26 guys that are on their roster are never only making 32, they're never going to just throw 43 million at one player. And there's one thing about this Orioles team in years past that I think has to be different at the trade deadline this year. The Orioles have always been sellers at the deadline, trading guys like Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope, Zach Britton. There's one thing, though, about this team. I don't think they should be sellers this time around. They should keep this team together. A very scrappy team that has been playing so well and gelling together, you can't split up. And if you're going to make a trade for a major league piece, give some minor league guys. Do not trade one of the guys in this active 26-man roster that's been playing so well. You can't do that. And I know in DS Pass, like I said, they've been sellers at the deadline. Britton, Machado, Scope, Adam Jones. I would not be a seller at this deadline. If anything, I'd be a buyer and I would not trade anything at the major league level. I wouldn't trade a piece in my starting lineup because if you look at this Orioles team, obviously there aren't many assets to trade, not many pieces that teams would want. Jorge Lopez, Trey Mancini, Cedric Mullins, three guys that I think a lot of teams would want. But I think this team has earned the right to just stay together and give it a chance. All in all, the Orioles are tied for the longest winning streak in the major leagues with eight games right now, tied with the Seattle Mariners. That's their longest win streak since 2005 for the Orioles. They have five of the top 100 prospects in all of the major leagues in, in the farm system. Hold the number one pick in this upcoming week's MLB draft. They're two games out of the wild card spot and one game under 500. What a time to be alive if you are an Orioles fan, and I think you've earned the right for this team just to stay together and not be a seller at the deadline. they got to buy in and just give this a chance. Just try to make the playoffs. Why not? You're one game out of 500, two games out of the wild card. The closest you've been in five-plus years. Make a shot. Take a chance. You haven't made the playoffs since 2016 when you lost in the wild card round to the Toronto Blue Jays. Before that was 2014, you lost the ALCS to the Royals. You've only made the playoffs once since 2016. And that was in 2016, so no times in the last six seasons. Make it a shot. Try. Why not? Make a run for it. Five straight seasons, you haven't made the playoffs. Why not give this team a chance to just make a run at it? I don't see why not. You just swept the Angels and the Rangers at Camden Yards. For a team that has lost 100-plus games in three straight full MLB seasons, so 2019, 2021, and 2018, so 2018, 2019, 2021, excluding the shortened 60-game season in 2020, being only one game out of 500 right now is unreal at this point in the season. You've lost 100-plus games in three full straight MLB seasons. 2018, 2019, and 2021. Give this team a chance. The Orioles were under 500 by 11 games in the middle of June, and things look to be the same Orioles of old, where things are just going bad, going south as always. But somehow they built up, won one game at a time, and the Orioles now have a chance to play the Chicago Cubs, who just got swept in a four-game series against the LA Dodgers, to look to add to their win streak. Eight-game win streak right now can become an 11-game win streak. I think they got two games against the Cubs, actually, so it could become a 10-game win streak. Just continue to build. Do not be sellers at the trade deadline. That's what I want from the Orioles. Be a buyer, if anything, and don't trade any major league pieces. So the next thing I'm going to talk about, the Seattle Mariners, the other hot team in the MLB right now, getting a lot of attention as well. 45-42 and in the season. They've won 16 of their last 19 games. After a 1-4 stretch against the Angels in the middle of June, they've won 16 of their last 19, which I just saw in a Yahoo Sports article. They've won 11 of their last 12 games, 16 of their last 19. They were 10 games out of 500 and now three games over 500, tied for an AL wildcard spot currently. They just swept the Toronto Blue Jays, who gave the Red Sox a ton of problems a few weeks ago, which I mentioned on my podcast two weeks ago now. But the Blue Jays have cooled off heavily as of late, 1-9 in their last 10 games, 
just got swept by the Seattle Mariners. The Mariners now play the Nationals, who are 1-9 over the last 10 games. The Mariners can add on to their win streak and their hot streak, just like the Orioles. The Orioles are playing the Cubs, one of the worst teams in baseball. The Mariners are playing the Nats, again, one of the worst teams in baseball. The Mariners have won eight straight games, just like the Orioles. The last time the Mariners have won eight straight was in 2018. They're 16-3 and since June 19th. 1-2-3 ERA in the bullpen, which is the best in baseball over that stretch. A 32.7% strikeout percentage, which is first among all bullpens in the major leagues over that stretch. And I just saw in a Seattle Times sports columnist uh, tweet from Larry Stone was that they are 11-2 since their brawl with the LA Angels, which turned their season around, I guess. It just gave them a fight, gave them a reason to play. They're 9-1 since serving their suspensions of that brawl with the Angels. And things have just been looking up for that Mariners team. And the thing about this Mariners team is that they have talent. And I don't think really anyone expected anything out of this Orioles or Mariners team. But to see two teams rising up like both these teams have, especially with the Mariners winning 16 of their last 19 games and the Orioles being 19-11 and 11 over their last 30, it's a very exciting time for two franchises that just have been on the bottom of the baseball spectrum now for the past five years or so. The Mariners are usually a sneaky team, somewhere around just about 500 typically. You know, they were 27 and 33 in the shortened season in 2020 with a 450 winning percentage, 90 and 72 with a 556 winning percentage in 2021. They're 45 and 42 right now. But one thing about this Mariners team is that they have a team that actually wants to play. They're actually fighting together. Ever since that Angels brawl, they've just come together and been winning games. This is a team that hasn't made the playoffs since 2001. They've, they've not made the playoffs since 2001. So over 20 years, this Seattle Mariners team has not made the playoffs. And now they're making a run. And then you look at the Baltimore Orioles, just one game under 500 after being the laughing stock of baseball for the past three, four, five years. It's a very exciting time if you are a Mariners fan or an Orioles fan, and you deserve it, especially with how much your team's been struggling in recent years, not making the playoffs since 2001 for the Mariners, and the Orioles losing 100-plus games in three straight full MLB seasons, 2018, 2019, 2021. You deserve this. And I'm happy to, I'm happy for both franchises. I truly am. So now I'm going to talk about the World Baseball Classic. It will officially return now in March of 2023 for the first time since 2017. This will be its fifth reiteration. Uh, there was supposed to be a tournament for it in 2021, but it was canceled in May of 2020 because of the pandemic. The World Baseball Softball Confederation had a partnership with the major leagues now ever since 2013 and they just announced that the first world baseball classic since 2017 will be next year less than a year from now in 2023 the last one as i said was in 2017 uh the united states won its first title in that one the previous four world baseball classic installments so the three before 2017 were in 2006 2009 and 2013 then obviously the fourth being 2017 this will be the fifth the united states won in 2017 and had a lot of star players help them get to where they were. Andrew McCutcheon, Giancarlo Stanton, Christian Yelich, Marcus Stroman actually won tournament MVP that year. Nolan Arenado, Alex Bregman, Buster Posey, Paul Goldschmidt, Adam Jones all contributed to that team winning. I wonder which Americans will play in 2023. I will give my dream lineup in just a few minutes or so now to say who, if I could pick the American players that were going to play, I would. this would be my lineup. I'll give you that. Um, in just a few minutes, but uh, all 16 participants from the 2017 World Baseball Classic earned automatic bids in the 2023 World Baseball Classic, and this year's, or next year's that is, World Baseball Classic, there'll be four pools with five teams in each one, 
The first 16 teams of the teams that qualified for the 2017 World Baseball Classic, so just like I said, they are, they earned automatic bids to get back. The next four teams are set to compete in September of 2022 to qualify for the 2023 World Baseball Classic. In the World Baseball Classic, there will be four pools, A through D. The layout's a round-robin double elimination. So five teams in each pool. There will be a round-robin double elimination, as I said. After that, the top two teams in each pool advance to a single elimination A-team tournament. It will look something like this. There will be a quarterfinal number one matchup, which will be held March 15th and 16th in Tokyo. The winners and runners-up of pools A and B will be playing in Tokyo in the quarterfinal number one matchup. And then for quarterfinal number two, it will be held March 17th and 18th in Miami. The winners and runners-up of pools C and D will be participating in that. And then the semifinals will be March 19th and 20th in Miami. And the championship game will be March 21st in Miami. So it will be single elimination once you get to that 18 tournament. Uh, so in Pool A, it will be in Taiwan, March 8th to the 13th. The teams that are competing in that right now are China, Cuba, Italy. Italy is actually going to have Trey Mancini playing. And then also Mike Piazza, former New York Met. Great. will be managing that team. The Netherlands will also be in Pool A. And then qualifier uh, team number one. Will be in Pool A, which we don't know who that, be, that will be until September of this year. Uh, pool B will be in Tokyo, Japan, Australia, China, Japan, Korea, and then qualifier team number two will, will be participating in that. Pool C will be held in Phoenix, Arizona, Canada, Colombia, Mexico, the United States, and then qualifier team number three. And then Pool D will be held in Miami, Florida, and that'll be the Dominican Republic, Israel, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, and qualifier team number four. So for the qualifying teams, it'll be a double elimination tournament uh, with two pools, each containing six teams. Two teams in each pool are giving a bye to the second round. Argentina is in Pool B, their first time ever competing in a qualifying round. The other 11 teams in the qualifying tournament have participated before in a qualifying round. South Africa, Panama, Spain, and Brazil have all competed in the World Baseball Classic before and will get another chance to compete again this year. The top two teams from each group, so Pool A and Pool B, will advance to the 2023 World Baseball Classic. Pool A consists of Germany, the Czech Republic, Spain, France, Great Britain, and South Africa. That'll take place September 16th to the 21st in Germany. And then you've got Pool B, which is Panama, Nicaragua, Brazil, Argentina, Pakistan, New Zealand. That'll take place in Panama City, and that'll be September 30th to October 5th in Panama City. So... Very exciting. I'm very excited to see how it works out. Obviously, it hasn't been a thing since 2017, so it's been six years now. I'm not sure what the lineups will look like, but this will be my Team USA dream lineup that I'm going to give you in a second. Uh, one more thing I want to talk about is the roster requirements. According to the Baseball Continuum website, teams are made up of 28 players, of which 13 of them must be pitchers and two of them must be catchers. So with all that being said, here's my dream lineup. Will Smith, catcher of the LA Dodgers, will be my catcher. Freddie Freeman, first baseman for the LA Dodgers, will be my first baseman. Trevor Story, Red Sox second baseman, will be playing second. Trey Turner, LA Dodgers shortstop, will be playing short. Nolan Arenado, third baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals, will be playing third. Left field, Mookie Betts, current outfielder for the LA Dodgers. Center field, Mike Trout, LA Angels. Right field, Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees. And the DH, Bryce Hopper in 2021, NL MVP. Bryce Hopper will be DHing for me. Then for my six backups on the bench, I got JT Ramudo as my backup catcher. My outfield will be Byron Buxton and Cedric Mullins as my backup outfielders. My backup middle infield will be Tim Anderson. And then my corner infield backups will be Pete Alonso and Paul Goldschmidt. Goldschmidt, seven-time All-Star, four-time Gold Glove. 
uh, he'll be a great addition to this team. It's crazy to think he wouldn't even be starting on this team, but Freddie Freeman's been so great this past year. Goldschmidt's been as well that it'll be a tough competition for whoever's making this lineup. But those are my six backups, Ramudo, Buxton, Mullins, Tim Anderson, Pete Alonzo, Paul Goldschmidt. I added Mullins in there just to have speed. You need to have a guy that can steal a big base just like Byron Buxton, and that's what I added. I added some speed, added some power with Alonzo and Goldschmidt, added a backup catcher, added great fielders as well, Anderson, Buxton, great fielders. So there's my six backups. And then potential bench roster spots for guys I didn't name that could potentially make it. Tommy Edmond, Corey Seager, Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos, George Springer, Christian Yelich, Giancarlo Stanton, Bo Bichette, all the chance to make it, I'm sure. Uh, so now for my pitching rotation. The USA pitching really is elite, so it's very hard to pick. I have a six-man rotation because that's how deep the Team USA pitching is. Uh, Jacob deGrom, pitcher of the New York Mets. Max Scherzer, pitcher of the New York Mets. Justin Verlander, pitcher for the Houston Astros. Garrett Cole, pitcher for the New York Yankees. Shane McClanahan, pitcher for the Tampa Bay Rays. And then Corbin Burns, pitcher of the Milwaukee Brewers. I will be my sixth starter. And then potential starters, guys that I didn't name. Alex Manoa of the Toronto Blue Jays. Joe Musgrove, Zach Whaler, Dylan Cease, and Max Fried. So, obviously, ton of talent for Team USA. It's not going to be easy to pick who's going to make it. Uh, you got Musgrove of the Padres, Manoa of the Blue Jays, Whaler of the Phillies, Cease of the White Sox, and then Freed of the Braves. All great players there. So now for my bullpen, I got seven guys in the pen. Josh Hader of the Milwaukee Brewers, Clay Holmes of the New York Yankees, Ryan Helsley of the St. Louis Cardinals, Devin Williams of the Milwaukee Brewers, Garrett Whitlock of the Boston Red Sox, A.J. Mentor of the Atlanta Braves, and Daniel Bard of the Colorado Rockies. So those are my seven relievers right there. And the potential other bullpen options, very deep pitching once again for the bullpen as well. David Robinson, Taylor Rogers, Craig Kimbrell, who's been struggling now over the last year um, this season with the L.A. Dodgers, but added him in there just because of how great he's been historically. Uh, John Schreiber of the Red Sox as well, big fan of him. Michael King and Michael Fulmer. So we'll see how these teams really pan out. Obviously, Team USA is going to have a ton of talent. Hopefully, a lot of the stars play, but I understand if they wouldn't uh, just since you know injuries can happen. And a lot of these guys, some of them are injury-prone. Aaron Judge, Mike Trout, they've had their fair share of injuries. So uh, we'll see if they end up playing. But uh, that'd be such a stacked lineup. you got Will Smith catching, Freddie Freeman at first, Trevor Story at second, Trey Turner at short, Nolan Arenado at third, Mookie Betts in left, Mike Trout in center, Aaron Judge in right, Bryce Hoppe DHing, you got JT Ramudo backup catching. You got Byron Buxton and Cedric Mullins as backup outfielders. Tim Anderson as a backup middle infielder. Pete Alonzo and Paul Goldschmidt as backup corner infielders, primarily first baseman. And then my pitching rotation Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, Shane McClanahan, and Coleman Burns, making that a six man rotation. And then my bullpen Josh Hader, Clay Holmes, Ryan Helsley, Devin Williams, Garrett Whitlock, AJ Minter, and Daniel Bard. That'll be such a stacked lineup, and I'm very excited to see which players are going to play and which players aren't. I'm not sure when that's going to come up, but I'd imagine over the next you know, four months or so, by the time the MLB season's over, that'll probably be the time guys will be committing to the team, so probably around October, I'd imagine. Um, and then if you look at it, there's going to be a lot of talent within this tournament, but I think the Dominican Republic will be a huge uh, team that'll be favored in this, especially considering they'll have guys like Juan Soto, Juan DeFranco, Manny Machado, Jose Ramirez, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Fernando Tastis Jr., Rafael Devis, Julio Rodriguez, Luis Severino, Framber Valdez, 
they'll have a ton of talent, this team, for the Dominican Republic. So I'm interested to see who's going to play for them and who isn't going to. Uh, but they'll also have a great bullpen as well. Emmanuel Classe, who I just talked about. Alex Colomay, Gregory Soto. They're going to have a ton of talent on this Dominican Republic team as well. So I'm excited to see how this tournament plays out. I really am. Uh, I'm hoping a lot of the American guys are going to play like Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, Bryce Hopper, Mookie Betts, Nolan Arenado, Freddie Freeman. I think things will be really interesting if the American team can get a lot of their guys to play. I think this could be a great tournament. And obviously, I think you could get a great viewership, especially if a lot of these guys play. If Shoei Otani plays and Mike Trout plays and Rafael Devis and Bogut, so all the biggest players in the major leagues today play, I think this could be a huge tournament. I think you can make a lot of money. And I think, think you can make a lot of buzz than the sports world. Hopefully ESPN actually talks about baseball for once since, like I just said, they only talk about the NBA and NFL year-round. Maybe this will be something that will get ESPN to talk about baseball more, especially with this could be such an exciting tournament. Anyways, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening in. I really appreciate it. I'll be back on hopefully within the next day or two to talk about the NBA free agency. I'm going to talk about probably about the Red Sox, how they've been playing against the Tampa Bay Rays uh, with Chris Sale making his debut tonight. Um, then I'll also be talking more about uh, what's going on in the MLB uh, with the uh, trade deadline coming up. And then also with the MLB draft, uh, which will be coming this weekend. And then I'll also break down the NHL draft, uh, which I was hoping to do before now, but hopefully I'll do it in my next episode. But anyways, thank you guys so much for listening as always. I really appreciate it. Hope you stay safe and hope you stay well. Thank you.